Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in December 2019. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In Confluence, navigating the personal and political on rivers of the New West, paddler and journalist Zach Podmore takes readers down western rivers and deep into some of the most pressing environmental and social justice issues of our time, including uranium tailings at the Ute Mountain Ute lands near the San Juan River, the treatment of asylum seekers crossing the Rio Grande, and one of the largest dam removal projects in history on Washington's Elwa River. Zach Bodmore is a Utah-based journalist and film producer who covers conservation issues in Utah politics. He's previously written for Outside, Sierra, High Country News, Four Corners Pre-Press, High Desert Journal, Canoe and Kayak, and Huff Post. His films have been selected for several uh, film festivals and won some awards. Uh, he's currently serving as a Report for America Corps member covering conflict and change in San Juan County for the Salt Lake uh, Tribune. Confluence is his first book. It's being published by Tory House Press. It's out now. Zach Podmore, welcome uh, to the program. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much for having me today. Appreciate you uh, you being on. By the way, when we had our uh, latest, um, when we compiled our latest UPR book list, we we uh, periodically talked to booksellers and, and listeners. Uh, your book was mentioned uh, several times, uh, so you're, you're, you're prominently displayed on the UPR book list. Oh, great. Well, that's great to hear. <laughs> um, so navigating the personal and uh, political, I want to talk about the personal first. What's, what's the personal? Yeah, this, this book centers on five trips I took down uh, different rivers from Washington State down to Texas. Um, but it's also kind of a look back at my childhood growing up in, in western Colorado and running rivers in, in Colorado and Utah um, as I was growing up. Um, both of my parents were public school teachers, um, and before that they were raft guides, which meant that they had the skills to take us down some of the great uh, multi-day river trips we have around the region and the time to do it since they had summers off to take my sister and I out through these uh, great canyon floats. Um, so I lost my mom to cancer in 2014, um, which is the first essay in this, in this book starts um, just after that, um, a few months later. And so it's kind of a look back at, at my childhood on rivers and then going to these new um, places, new to me, um, and kind of reflecting on, on all of that personal context and uh, trying to explore these contemporary kind of conservation issues and, and reporting on those. Uh, you said in a, another interview I was reading that uh, um, your, your life in, in some ways has been held together by rivers in the Colorado Basin. Yeah, that's true. I, I feel like it's one of the more consistent things throughout my entire life. I did my first multi-day river trip on the San Juan River right near where I live in Bluff, Utah, uh, when I was just over one year old. Um, spent about seven days out there and came back every single year to, to the San Juan or Dolores or Colorado or Green Rivers and, and uh, had just you know, really great experiences growing up and then uh, learned the skills to go out and explore them on my own uh, later and then started to work that more and more in with my reporting as I became a journalist after college and, and tried to bring the two together to use uh, river running as a way to tell uh, stories about place and stories about rivers and stories about people um, from what I hope is kind of a uh, a new angle that maybe hasn't been seen as much in other reporting on on the same topics. Uh, Zach, as we're as we're going along here, uh, you're cutting out just a little bit. Um, are, are you there? Hey, Tom. Sorry about that. Oh, hey. Uh, no, no problem. Uh, this is sounding a bit clearer. Go figure. Uh, landline, we <laughs> landline was the was the worst of them. Uh, anyway, we're talking about uh, your life on on rivers. I want to pick up that thread. You were uh, out on the rivers at one year old. You said, um, what, "What was that like?" It's, it's somewhat unusual growing up on the river. Yeah, it was it was a really uh, great way to spend time as a kid, playing on the beach um, with other you know youngsters running around and building sandcastles and, and floating down through these really magnificent wild places that, that we have in our part of the world. Um, so it, it's um, shaped everything that's come in my life since. What uh, Obviously, the river, uh, this is the Dolores River, right? 
Yeah, the Del- I spent some time on the Dolores. That's where yeah. my parents Your managed parents. a raft company before I was born. Yeah, so um, that but, meant something to them, I think. Was was this purely economic? Probably meant more than just economics for them. Uh, no, it wasn't uh, too successful of a company. Ever. Oh, I was, see. I uh, see. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, so, was, it was more to be able to spend time out there, and they had both moved to Colorado to go to college and um, and had discovered rivers soon after they moved out here, and and they um, went and managed a raft company that was started by their friend from, from college and um, kind of did it just um, to see where it would go. And the construction of McPhee Reservoir on the Dolores River in, in 1986, I believe, uh, kind of put an end to that company mm-hmm. because the, the consistent spring flows that used to uh, go through that canyon every year um, became much less regular um, as the water was stored and, and uh, sent off to irrigation. Um, so it, it was a big impact on several raft companies that um, kind of focused on the Dolores River. Uh, so, you know, for them, for you, what what does it mean to you to be out on, on the water? You spent a lot of your life just, uh, you know, out, out on that flowing water in the Red Rock country. Yeah, it's, it's a great place to be. Um, right after I graduated from college in, in 2011, my friend and I um, were both uh, lifelong river runners, decided we wanted to go on the longest river trip possible. Um, we went up to the source of the uh, Green River in the Wind River Mountains in Wyoming and started paddling down a little creek in, in pack rafts. And when we had enough flow, we switched to sea kayaks and, and paddled all the way down to the confluence with the Colorado River and through the Grand Canyon and down uh, through Lake Mead and past Las Vegas uh, to the Mexican border and then spent a few days in, in pack rafts um, paddling through the Colorado River Delta, which um, the Colorado River, as many people know, hasn't connected to the sea in, in decades. Um, so we were kind of going through these canals after the river dried up and finally made it down to the ocean. And I had never really um, thought that I would become a journalist, but it was that trip, uh, which I did right after college, that that got me on that path. Um, What had started out as a desire to go on this really long, four-month-long, 1,700-mile river trip um, through these amazing places turned into a reporting project when uh, it became clear that there was much more to the story than just, you know, hanging out in the canyons and, and enjoying the scenery. Um, water is such an important part of, of the Western landscape and, and everything we do in the cities or in agriculture or in industry uh, is tied back to, to water in many ways, and um, in particular to the Colorado River um, in, in much of the West, the Southwest. So um, the, the, the time I spent on rivers and the, the love I have for those landscapes um, has slowly morphed over the years into um, a, a way to um, to explore these stories as a journalist. Um, one of the uh, one of the things you talk about in the book is uh, a, a release of water, extra release of water in the Colorado, um, which actually, for the first time in many many years, uh, did did I don't know floods the right word, but provide water to the delta. Yeah, and in 2014, that's the first essay, chronologically speaking, in the book. Um, in 2014, there was a, a two-month release of water um, through the Colorado River Delta, right from the Mexican border, where the river uh, typically dries up, um, down towards the uh, Gulf of California, where it used to connect. Um, and there was never a continuous above-ground connection of water from the river to the ocean, um, but there were these stages of release um, that they um, let out of the canals into the former riverbed. And I was lucky enough to be able to go there um, towards the tail end of that when uh, a later release was uh, connecting with the ocean um, through a series of kind of swamps that are there in the estuary. Um, I was there with a hydrologist from uh, a Mexican university who had been studying the Delta for 30 years. And it was a really incredible experience to be there with him in, in this place that had been his life's work and see flowing water in these areas for really the first time. Um, there hadn't ever been an intentional release of water like that in the Delta. Um, and hopefully there'll be another one in, in the coming years as well. 
yeah, that must have been extraordinary because for years and years and years, and, and it's it's back that way now. Uh, we use up the entire Colorado River, right? It doesn't reach the the sea, as you said. Yeah, about ninety percent of the river is typically taken taken out of the river by the time it reaches the border with Mexico. And then the remaining 10% goes into a, a giant canal right at the Mexican border, um, about 800 CFS for most of the year. If, if people are river runners out there, that number might mean something to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the riverbed itself is uh, is mostly dry. There are a series of kind of wetlands where the water table is high, which remain uh, really important stopovers for migrating birds because um, it's one of the, the few areas that has water in you know, the Sonoran Desert um, on that scale. Um, so it's, it's a really um, incredible place to paddle, to think about the history of the river. It was, uh, the Colorado River Delta used to be 3,000 square miles of wetlands. It wasn't like uh, you know, a typical river channel. It was this connected series of lagoons and pools and, and, and marshes, um, and about 10% of that original area still has some water in it. Um, so the restoration efforts, even though there was only a relatively small amount of water that was released in 2014, um, less than 1% of the river's uh, average annual flow, um, that that release has continued to uh, provide habitat with native species and, and expanded wetlands in the years since. Um, so it was, a, it was a big success from, from what I've heard um, from the ecologists who are working on that. So the river obviously is is all being used up, and uh, population continues to grow. What uh, what's the future? Yeah, there's not much. There's not any more water to to play with in the Colorado River system um, in terms of taking more out. Um, everything that's happening now is is uh, shuffling water around. Um, so you know, agriculture is the biggest use, and as cities have more and more demand. Um, there's you know, agricultural water is, is transferred to municipal supplies. Um, there's also a lot of you know efficiency measures that can be taken. Las Vegas has done a, a good job of um, limiting landscape watering um, because they have a, a more uh, restricted water right than, than other cities such as Denver. Um, so they've actually paid people to um, replace their their lawns with more water-efficient landscaping, um, which is a big water saver. So there are lots of things that that water managers are thinking about and and doing in order to um, meet projected growth in the area. Um, But um, a lot of people who are working down on the the Colorado River Delta project and and other uh, conservationists are also um, hoping that that as those changes are made, the, the ecology of the river will also get enough um, water to maintain at least its its current standards. Uh, one of your films, but you're a filmmaker as well, and uh, you can see some of these on on the website, zachpodmore.com. Uh, I was watching one of these. Uh, you're out there with, uh, with some folks, including, uh, by the way, Stephen Trimble. Um, but it's a, I, I, I didn't catch the gentleman's name who said this. He said the, the river, talking about the Colorado River, I think, the river should have its own allocation, he said. Yeah, yeah those films were um, made in, in 2012 on a trip we took from Rocky Mountain National Park at the source of the Colorado River down to uh, Lake Powell and, and interviewed various uh, people along the way. Um, there's a lot of uh, talk and um, and also uh, legal work going on to grant in-stream flow rights, it's called, to rivers. So a, a minimum water right that's reserved for the river itself, not for any particular use. Um, a lot of those rights are a lot uh, more junior to um, agricultural uses, say. So if there's a drought, they don't necessarily um, provide that minimum flow always to the river. Um, but for the most part, um, there are these kind of minimum base flows on, on streams and creeks and rivers uh, throughout Colorado and, and Utah, um, at least in more perennial streams. By the way, in that, in that same film, um, Stephen Trimble um, says, I'll just quote him loosely, 
he says talking about uh, how do we get everybody together to agree on on what to do not only with the rivers but with uh, uh, you know with, with with public lands with lands he says we need to get ourselves out into these places to have these discussions and then his experience has been the discussion goes a lot better you can reach an agreement if you're actually having the discussion on the land I wonder what you think about that yeah absolutely I think um in a lot of with a lot of these issues that the landscape is literally the common ground that that everyone involved uh, shares as both um, a, a resource and as something that's you know, more than that something that's part of their identity and and who they are and in San Juan County I know um, there's a, there's a lot of where I live in, in South uh, East Utah there's a lot of kind of political conflict um, at times but the landscape is that that common factor that everyone who who grew up here or who has spent a lot of time here um, that I've met really loves the landscape and and knows it really well. Um, And I do think that those difficult conversations become more productive when um, they're rooted in place and they they have that uh, common shared background as opposed to being more abstracted and, and getting more into just identities or, or values that that may um, may see people talking past each other more. Mm. What's what's been your experience or what you've observed? You're you're there in San Juan County. You, I think you were there. Were you there through the whole Bears Ears, all the ups and downs there? I was. Yeah, I moved here in 2015. Okay. Um, so, what are you know based on that? And that's that's been some pretty heated and pretty divided. Uh, debates. Um, do you uh, do you think that there is possibility for because the land means different things to different people, and and land uh, produces very very strong feelings, and so when you have these different ideas collide as we did and have and continue to have in Bears Ears, uh, it, it makes at least me wonder. You know, can these things be reconciled? Um, yeah, I think that's a question that a lot of people have here in the county. And, and as a reporter, um, I, I try not to to weigh in too much on one side or the other. I, I more try to just tell the, the various perspectives and stories as, as uh, honestly as I can um, from what I'm hearing from people I interview. Um, and I do I do believe that there is um, a lot of common ground, and, and that's something that I hear a lot. Um, from people on both sides of the debate that we need to stop um, pointing fingers and, and thinking about this as kind of the be all end all of uh, San Juan County. If the monument is expanded or if it's reduced, whatever it may be, and start thinking about um, what's really best for uh, the residents and the landscape and, and, um, and the people who come here to visit it. Um, And so I think that's a, a, a debate that as the kind of initial emotional um, reaction to the monument starts to fade a little bit into the background, uh, I think that's a debate that I hope will become more productive as we go forward. So, but you are hearing from people on all sides, at least a desire for it for, to find common ground. Sounds like what you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the tribes that, you know, came together to create Bears Ears, this uh, five tribe coalition um, has said since the beginning that they see um, the Bears Ears movement as a as a process of healing, as healing with um, both the past and uh, healing the landscape. And I think that's something that I've heard from uh, monument opponents as well that they they hope that um, that this can be resolved in a way that that heals some of those uh, differences and um, conflicts in the past. Uh, eventually, I, I think we're a little ways off from that um, at the moment, but I think it's brought up a lot of important conversations that needed to be had, and, and people are working through that. Well, let's uh, take a break. We're overdue for a break. Uh, we're talking about uh, a new book, first book from Zach Podmore, Confluence, Navigating the Personal and Political on Rivers of the New West. And uh, Zach Podmore is um, a Report for America Corps member uh, covering conflict and change in San Juan County for the Salt Lake Tribune. 
Um, his uh, new book, Confluence, is out now from Tory House Press. He uh, describes himself as a paddler and a journalist. Um, I want to talk more about San Juan County, more about these issues of rivers in the West as well, and I'll alert you, Zach Pomard, I'll ask you to read something from your book when we come, come back. Uh, so we'll have more following this break. This is Science by the Slice. USU researchers say stereotypes about computer scientists contribute to underrepresentation of women in the field. From teen computer science camps they have conducted for the past six years, the researchers observe parental support and mentoring by slightly older peers boosts girls' interest. Encouragement by fathers in particular influences their daughters' success in computer science. Increasing the number of women and minority computer scientists is important, the researchers say, because everyone uses computers. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. When it comes to elections, the votes you cast are your voice. That's why public radio reporters are working around the clock to bring you the 2020 news you need so that you can make an informed decision. And that's why you rely on this station. Hi, I'm Susan Davis. November is coming up quick. It's time to listen and it's time to give. Donate to this station right now. And thanks. Support UPR's election coverage and make a donation right now at upr.org. Thank you. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in December 2019. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is uh, Zach Podmore. He's a paddler and a journalist and uh, now an author. Uh, He is a Report for America uh, reporter for uh, the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, He lives in Bluff in San Juan County. And the subtitle of his book, Confluence, is Navigating the Personal and Political and Rivers of uh, the New West. Uh, so, Zach Podmore, is there a, a, a brief passage you could read us from the book? Sure, yeah. This passage is from the uh, title essay in the book, Confluence. It's about the Little Colorado River and uh, its confluence with the Colorado River near Grand Canyon National Park. Um, and the, the this essay follows a trip my friend and I took down a flash flood, um, a kayaking trip. We took down a flash flood um, from Cameron, Arizona, on the Navajo Nation down to the, the confluence with the Colorado um, over uh, about four days um, in 2015. Um, so this scene here is when we walk up to the, the flash flood for the first time um, and are taking it all in. The water slides past in slow boils, giving off a dank, metallic smell. This land is remembering what it means to rot, what it means to rust. The mud river before us absorbs the mid-morning sun and reflects it back, not as a glittering mirror, but with the glow of a blacksmith's forge. The entire channel pulses in a dance of molten bronze. I've been tracking this water through online hydrographs since the storm hit near the Arizona-New Mexico line 54 hours ago. It fell as a downpour in the lowlands and as wet snow in the Ponderosa forests along the rim. The bed of the Little Colorado River had been dry for weeks, but as the rainwater ran through the flats, the rising sun hit the heavy snow above. Soon, a heavy wall of foam was weaving down sandy creek beds. The flood consumed dark nests of greasewood and tumbleweed until it was more flesh than liquid, a ravenous invertebrate feeding off of gravity, absorbing new tributaries, growing, sniffing out the Grand Canyon 250 miles away and thousands of feet below. So I go on to talk about what it's like to kayak down a, a river that's more mud than water. Um, the, the Little Colorado River is dry most of the year, but um, it runs in these enormous storms. Um, it's a huge drainage basin, basin that's you know bigger than many states on the East Coast, um, and so when it runs, it, it just picks up so much uh, sediment um, that it's unlike paddling any other river I've ever been on. It's 
it splashes your face. It kind of leaves uh, a veil of, of mud in your eyes that takes a few minutes to, to blink out. And um, trying to run through the rapids is, is difficult because uh, it doesn't behave like white water normally behaves because there was no you know, white foam that you use to kind of navigate through different uh, features in the rapid. Typically, um, it was all very much um, uh, just this thick mass of, of foamy, muddy water. Um, so it was, it was really a great experience to be able to, to paddle down that and to uh, spend some time in this canyon that, that not a ton of people get to see. Mm. So this was fairly isolated where you were there. Yeah, it's pretty hard to access that canyon. Mm-hmm. Um, there's often a lot of mud in there for backpackers that makes it difficult. And then, uh, you know, kayakers uh, have to wait for the flash flood like we did. And, and as we discovered, um, it's not so easy to, to carry your kayak out of the Grand Canyon when you get to the end of this run um, and, and have to bring all your gear back to the rim. Mm. Uh, you, you say in the book that uh, on some places on the river, you're pretty close to the, the highway. You're not all that isolated. In other places, you are very isolated. You talk in the book about uh, wilderness and how wilderness is shaped by our, the definition we have in our minds of space. What do you talk about that? Yeah, that's something that I'm, I'm discussing in this essay. Um, it's dealing with a proposal that was made to uh, build a tramway to the bottom of the Grand Canyon that would carry up to 10,000 people per day from the rim of the canyon down to the canyon floor in this place that is otherwise really hard to access. It would, it would take a multi-day hike to get there or uh, a paddling trip like we took or a, a Grand Canyon uh, trip, which is you know typically five days at least uh, and up to three weeks um, for people who raft through the Grand Canyon. Um, and I was kind of questioning the idea of how a place changes based on how we access it. So um, having this experience of, of riding the flash flood into the canyon uh, completely defines how I experienced the confluence when we finally arrived there and how I think about it um, now, you know, years later, looking back on it. Um, and I think if you, if you ride a tramway to the same place, uh, the, the context of that journey is so different that the place itself starts to change. Um, and um, I know there are a lot of, of good reasons that um, act for access, uh, increasing access and, and letting people get out and explore these places. Um, but I think that needs to be part of the discussion as well, that um, that maybe the, the way that we access a place uh, comes to kind of define and, and, um, changes the, the place itself and on a very real real level, um, um, not just in terms of the view of, of tramway coming off the rim, but in terms of what you're allowed to uh, experience when you arrive there. Mm. That resonates with me, at least uh, um, as I drive, and as I did this summer, to, drove a couple times into Moab, and just off the main highway, you have uh, the, the little highway into Arches, a national park, um, and it's and it's bumper to bumper, the the, the car is heading into heading into arches. On the other side of the highway, you have uh, Canyonlands, which is much more, you know, uh, much more vast. I guess you have to hike in to see some of the the places, and I'm sure the experience is much different. Park to park. Yeah, yeah I think it it probably is, and, and something that I talk about in the book it as well in uh, relation to the confluence is a, a trip I took out to the overlook for the confluence with this Dene uh, Navajo archaeologist named Jason Nez, um, who has been outspoken against that um, that project proposal. And he showed me this pilgrimage route that you know, snakes across the Colorado Plateau for hundreds of miles and has these giant cairns of rock that people have left there over hundreds of years and these rock art panels where um, people have uh, inscribed the um, uh, these stories on the rock as they've been making this pilgrimage route down to the confluence um, since, you know, uh, for at least a thousand years, people have been going down there to um, visit what is a, an incredibly sacred site to many tribes and also to gather salt at these seeps. Um, so that, you know, 
journey that the, the people have been making um, on that route by foot for so long is, is completely alien to me. It's something that I uh, can't experience because um, it's so much easier for me to get there, even you know, paddling into the, the place over a few days. Um, so it's something I play with in the book and, and go back and forth on is, yeah, how um, all these layers of, of, the con- of context are uh, put onto uh, any given location. Uh, you've, uh, you describe uh, tourism and outdoor recreation as resource-intensive. Uh, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that. You, you muse on this in the, in the book. Yeah, it's something that comes up a lot uh, in in the context of the Bears Ears debate. Here is um, for a while, you know, um, kind of conservationists were saying that the uh, we need to transition away from extractive economies and and focus on recreation based economies um, in order to protect the landscapes. And as many people have pointed out, the um, Recreation economy itself uh, is incredibly resource-intensive, with uh, paying for um, or people, you know, burning fossil fuels to to fly or drive to a place, and then the building of, of hotels and um, whatever it may be. Um, so that I think um, is becoming more and more part of um, the conversation when it comes to this transition from extractive economies to recreation economies and, and whether or not communities want that um, because the, the extractive economies still have to be there somewhere as everyone's relying on uh, minerals that are mined and, and fossil fuels to uh, do these trips to what might be considered a, um, wilderness areas or national parks or whatever it is. Do you do you think we're thinking? I I haven't thought as much about that. Uh, you know, outdoor recreation and industry as resource intensive. Usually, you you hear what you hear is uh, that dichotomy is being well. You know, outdoor recreation is less resource intensive, and therefore, if we, from an environmental perspective, uh, more desirable. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not an expert on uh, all the numbers there, but. Um, if you're flying around halfway around the world to, to go on vacation, or even if you're driving across the state for the weekend, it's uh, certainly using a, a lot of resources in order to uh, make that trip possible. And um, I don't think that's, um, I'm not saying that's necessarily bad always or anything, but it, it has to be um, part of the, the conversation as we consider what the impacts of, um, of, recreation are i guess we um it's it's not a, a neutral um thing that starts right at the trailhead it there's all this uh all these resources that are used in order to get to the trailhead mm. i guess is, is what i'm saying right, and that, right. that's something i hear a lot from um from people who are maybe more opposed to uh, bears ears national monument um and uh, i think they have a point uh, yeah, so something to consider, um, I guess, along with wildlife and biodiversity and the, the, a lot of considerations, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think it's... Um, I'm not saying I agree with that more. I'm saying that every... I think uh, people from all sides of these debates uh, have something to offer to the conversation, and, and I appreciate hearing from from all those sides and, and reporting on those issues and, and trying to... Um, hear what people are doing to, to synthesize all of them and, and figure out where we go from here. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, we'll talk uh, more. I want to hear about uh, this dam removal uh, project up in uh, Washington, I think it was, right? And you uh, you took yeah. a, a kayak trip uh, through through that area. Um, and you also talk about uh, immigration, the people seeking asylum. Um, by the way, I'd, I'd like to have you, when we come back, read uh, on page 87. So if you could uh, maybe turn to that page uh, during the break. Um, we have uh, more with uh, Zach Podmore. The book is Confluence, Navigating the Personal and Political on Rivers of the New West, following this break. Over the past several weeks, UPR and NPR have had to make significant changes to our production workflow while still serving listeners in new ways. 
You've heard this on the air, especially as our different programs and daily news and talk programs responded quickly to cover the coronavirus crisis. For example, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is not planning any changes in the scheduling of new and repeated shows while under quarantine, but they have stopped recording in front of a live audience. So as a result, the show will sound different. No audience means no applause and laughs. So we're encouraging you to provide your own laughter or groans at home. And during this time, Wait, Wait promises to maintain its standard level of quality, a good solid C+. We're proud to be partnering with you to keep us all informed, enriched, and entertained. And we encourage you to support Utah Public Radio by going to our website and contributing online at upr.org. Across America, people and companies are coming to terms with the COVID economy. Where do you fit in? What do you want to know about your personal finances or the nation's financial future? I'm Carrie Miller. Tune in this week for Hard Questions, Real Answers, COVID-19 and the Economy, a call-in special featuring experts from Marketplace and the Federal Reserve. Tune in today at noon here on Utah Public Radio for that program. Utah Public Radio hopes you will join us in thanking our sponsors, the many businesses we rely on for their continued support of our mission to provide thoughtful and informative programming. Please stay informed, but also know that whenever you want to find the perfect oasis, UPR2, our online classical music station, is available at upr.org. The critical financial backing we receive from our business community means we can bring you the news updates and online classical music programming. And that's a wonderful thing, especially in these uncertain times. But what is certain? UPR's commitment to serve our listeners here and online at upr.org and through our UPR app. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in December 2019. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're talking with Zach Podmore. He's a paddler and a journalist. He's a filmmaker as well. And you can find out much more about him at his website, zachpodmore.com. He uh, reports for the Salt Lake Tribune with uh, the Report for America uh, from his uh, home in San Juan County. And he has a new book out from Tory House uh, Press, his first book, Confluence, Navigating the Personal and Political on Rivers of the New West. And that is, that is out now. Zach Podmore, I'd like to talk just a little bit about your, about your home, Bluff. Tell us about Bluff. Uh, it's it's a great place to live. It's only about 250 people down here. Uh, it takes um, the closest grocery store, which is a small one, is uh, half an hour away. And um, there's not a lot of other... Uh, somebody, my friend who was visiting yesterday, was trying to go to the hardware store, and um, that's not too easy to get to as well. So it's it's definitely a unique place to live, and um, but it's one that I really enjoy. And, and right in the middle of this uh, amazing landscape with the, the San Juan River flowing through it and um, all sorts of, of canyons extending out in all directions that uh, offer uh, endless opportunities for exploration. And then it's also right on the edge of the Navajo Nation, which is a lot of um, has to do with a lot of the reporting I do for the Salt Lake Tribune. Um, there's been a big uh, voting rights lawsuit that's occurred in San Juan County over the last seven years that's uh, ended up in the county commission and school board districts being redrawn after the old ones were found to uh, violate the Voting Rights Act. Um, and uh, we currently have, um, the, the county is um, majority Native American, and just last year we elected uh, the first ever majority Native American county commission. Um, so there's been a lot of, of um, stories that I've done for the Salt Lake Tribune related to that. Uh, yeah, that's so a, that's fascinating, fascinating place to live and to be a reporter. Um, and I, I was in uh, Blanding uh, just this past summer for a, a StoryCorps project. It was interesting to talk to some of the residents. Um, you know, there, there, a lot of perspectives. A couple of residents I talked to um, accused the judge of gerrymandering. Uh, when you know, and other others would say the judge was counteracting. You know what what is perceived as gerrymandering. So there's a lot of still conflict going on there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of um, people are, who are upset with the, the districts that were drawn by a special master that was brought in by the court um, because it kind of split Blanding, which is the biggest uh, town in the county, 
into three different commission districts. So a lot of people there feel like they were left without representation uh, after that that lawsuit played out. Now the latest um, I'm hearing, and it could be from your reporting, um, there's a possibility of a bill in the legislature coming up uh, which would allow for splitting, make it easier for counties to split? Yeah, this is something that was floated by Representative Kim Coleman um, from the Salt Lake area um, last legislative session, and it it didn't end up going anywhere, but I think it might be back um, this year. And um, her idea with the bill is to maybe make it easier for Salt Lake County to divide up, which is the most populous county in uh, in the state. Um, San Juan County is the largest by geography in the state, but it only has 15,000 people in it. And uh, some uh, elected officials down here, um, including Representative Phil Lyman from, from Blanding, have suggested that um, maybe that bill could be used to divide San Juan County and resolve some of these uh, these issues related to the, the voting rights, uh, the kind of fallout from the voting rights case. Um, the uh, Navajo elected leaders have, as far as I've heard, all expressed pretty uh, strong opposition to that uh, idea because um, they fear that if the county was split, uh, maybe along the, the Navajo Nation border, that uh, the, the Navajo Nation residents would be on the losing end of that bargain. Um, so it's still a long way off, but it is something that people are starting to talk about down here and, and starting to think about what that would mean for the county. Uh, San Juan County, pretty hot news spot. I don't know if you uh, <laughs> felt that that would be so uh, when you moved there. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's definitely... You know, it's not a big county, like I said, in, in terms of population, but um, there hasn't been any shortage of news yet since I started working for the, the newspaper in, in June. Yeah. Uh, by the way, how's that going, the reporting? Uh, it's good. Yeah, I, I enjoy it a lot. I've mm-hmm. never worked for a daily newspaper before, and it's a lot of new skills, and um, and I really enjoy going out and, and talking to people in the county and and trying to shed some light on some of the, the happenings here. Uh, so I'll take a, this to, from news to to literature. Uh, Bluff was the hometown of Ellen Malloy. Uh, she's one of your influences, I believe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ellen Malloy is, is an amazing uh, writer. Um, she passed away in 2004, um, but she had a house here in Bluff that's just a few blocks from my own that has kind of the same view from her window as I have from mine. So as I was uh, living in Bluff and and trying to write about the landscape, um, I had a a good uh, point of reference in terms of what you could do with with language to describe um, just a pretty small piece of ground because a lot of Ellen Malloy's work uh, has her talking about what's happening outside her window, and I had the same view out of mine. So when I would you know, think that I'd done an okay job uh, describing um, the way the light was hitting the rock or, or how you know animals were interacting down there, whatever it was, um, I could open Alan Malloy and realize that I had a lot of work left to do in, in order to improve my own writing. Um, so that was a pretty in, incredible experience to be able to, to write this book um, with Alan Malloy's books on my counter. Um, she was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize in, in 2003, I believe, and um, she just wrote some of the most beautiful and also the funniest essays that have um, ever come out of Southwestern literature. Hmm. You mentioned uh, two others as your, your favorite Southwestern authors, Edward Abbey and Charles Bowden. Yeah, um, Edward Abbey was somebody that influenced me a lot in, in high school as I was reading a lot of his books then. Um, and I discovered Charles Bowden later, who's uh, more of a border writer, but um, he writes these just uh, incredibly uh, gripping nonfiction essays that involve a lot more reporting than uh, Alan Malloy or Edward Abbey ever used. Um, he, was, he was more on the journalist side of things, uh, but he was able to uh, show, tell stories from, from different perspectives in uh, a way that was that's really... Um, absorbing, and, and from what I've heard from people who are featured in his work, um, pretty true to the way that they um, experience the world. 
Um, well, we, before we close, I do want to have you uh, tell me about your trip down um, the, uh, the the Elwa River. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, in, in Washington, Elwa, up on the Olympic uh, Olympic Peninsula of Washington. And uh, this is this is a very large dam removal project. So you you took it after they'd removed the dam. Yeah, we did the trip um, in 2015, which was a year after the second dam came out on the river. There were two dams uh, on the Elwha, um, which is only about a 50-mile-long river, um, but it's in the middle of a rainforest in the Olympic Peninsula up there. It gets 12 feet of annual precipitation, which is kind of hard to imagine from, from those of us who live in the desert. Um, but it's this big river that, with a small watershed, um, that had two dams on it that stood for nearly 100 years. Um, before the dams were built, there were an estimated 400,000 salmon that would spawn in the river af- every year. And, and after the dams were built, uh, that number dropped to around 4,000 fish. So just this massive uh, die-off as the um, dams without fish ladders kind of choked off uh, a lot of the, the watershed from the oceans. Um, the dams were never used to store water. They were used for electricity, and, and since they were older, they weren't producing much, uh, a significant amount of electricity uh, by the 1980s, and, and people started talking about uh, the idea of removing the dams and uh, as a way to restore the, the salmon runs. And it took about 30 years of, of work from tribes and environmental groups and, and politicians to get this to happen, uh, but in 2012 and 2014, uh, the dams came out, and uh, salmon were spotted upstream of the dam sites almost immediately afterwards. Um, so we did a, a source-to-sea trip on this um, short river um, over the course of a week or so and, and paddled through these beautiful uh, slate canyons, this glowing blue water among these you know, mossy giant pine trees, um, and then paddled through the reservoir sites and, and through the um, the dams that have been blasted out and kind of the sides of them are still clinging to the canyon walls, but you can paddle right through the middle of it. Um, and it was uh, a really um, very cool trip for me, um, both because it was so different than the landscape I'm used to in, in the Southwest and because it allowed you to, to paddle through um, an area that was underwater uh, for a hundred years um, until just before that. Mm. Uh, and and you, you you think through uh, in in this part of the book, I think um, about our <clears throat> seemingly insatiable need for electricity, right? Especially with new technology, and uh, and that conflicts with um, with a lot of other needs. Yeah, kind of the question. A lot of these essays have a philosophical question that I'm trying to grapple with as I tell the. Uh, the conservation story or the story of the river. Um, and in this one, I'm just contrasting um, the 30-year process it took to remove the dams that weren't really providing that much electricity, like I said. They weren't being used for water storage. But it took 30 years of, of meetings and debates and engineering um, work and ecological studies and uh, you know, scientific evaluations and, and presentations and debate in order to make sure that people knew what they were doing um, when these dams came out and to try and predict what would happen and to, to try and do it in as thought out and controlled a way as possible. Um, and it was a big success once it finally came through. Um, but I also mentioned that in the same 30 years that it took for the, that dam removal to take place, um, you know, the world has changed uh, dramatically from 1985 to uh, 2015 um, when we were there. And, you know, the Internet was pretty much um, invented and, and spread throughout the world. And everyone ended up, or billions of people at least, ended up with a smartphone in their pocket, which has rewired our brains and changed the way we communicate with each other. And all of that was kind of seen as just inevitable, as kind of something that was going to happen no matter what with the march of technological process progress. Um, and the dam removal was a pretty different um, more conservative method for um, figuring out what the effects of this removal would be. Um, so I'm just, that's something that I, I play with in the essay is uh, the difference uh, between those two um, 
trajectories that were taking place over that 30-year period. I wonder if I could, uh, I think we have about three minutes left in the program. <clears throat> I wonder if I'd have you uh, read uh, on page 87. This uh, really struck me. Uh, it's just a couple, sure. of, a couple yeah. of paragraphs, starting that night I dream, and then just the, uh, down to the, the break. Sure. Uh, that night I dream I'm floating weightless underwater. Light hangs in green webs. There's a bright center to the light with blackness all around, and I calmly breaststroke towards it. My throat itches to breathe, but sunlight has begun to outweigh darkness. The surface is near when a current pulls from my right side, a whirlpool yanking me down. I realize I'm in a reservoir, caught in the drag of a turbine intake. I kick harder. My lungs burn. I've heard it said that the easiest way to die in the desert is either thirst or drowning. But now I know. Drowning is an infinite thirst. Not a Sahara dehydration, tongue like rough sandstone, head pounding, feet stumbling toward an imagined oasis, skin cracking along with the hallucinating mind. Not that. A thirst more urgent. First, the lungs expand and contract behind a closed mouth while the swimmer's strokes fail. A point of heat starts in the chest and radiates outward until every cell is screaming in dry fire, made more insane by the proximity of the solution, cool water pressing into the nostrils along the seam of the lips. To drink is to quench that thirst. The turbines are near. Heat, heat, heat. I draw in a breath and out go the flames. Under cold, moonlit canyon walls, I wake coughing. Yeah, beautiful. It, it seemed to me to epitomize, um, yeah, you know, the, the, the beauty, for one thing, um, and, and just kind of the strangeness, in a way, of where you've spent a lot of your life, which is uh, on water in desert. Yeah, it is, it is a, a contrast that I love to be near, for sure. Yeah. Well, we've reached the end of our, our uh, time here. Uh, the book is Confluence, Navigating the Personal and Political on Rivers of the New West. Uh, the book's getting uh, a lot of great reviews. It's out from Tory House Press. You can find out more about Zach Podmore at his website, zachpodmore.com. Uh, Zach Podmore, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate it. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and CAPSA, the Rape Crisis Center for Cache and Rich Counties, providing confidential rape and sexual abuse recovery and support services, including support phone line, rape exam advocacy, legal reporting, and clinical therapy. Details at capsa.org. Utah Public Radio is an essential resource in your daily life, delivering reliable information to keep you informed. This service is more important than ever as we cope with the coronavirus crisis. You can listen to Utah Public Radio wherever you are, online at upr.org or with the UPR app. We are in this together. And wherever you listen from, UPR is here for you as a community resource to all. When you give to UPR, you support critical coverage in the weeks and months ahead. Give today at upr.org. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST, Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org. <laughs>